uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. I'm sorry, the Gospel of Luke, as uh, I told you, I'm a little bit off. The Gospel of Luke. What I told you last week as uh, we were dealing with it is that Jesus is really approached with two particular challenges. The one is that he was accused of casting out demons by uh, Beelzebub. And just after that, it says in chapter 11, verse 16, that others were testing him and were seeking from him a sign from heaven. I want to begin tonight by opening up for you a little bit of the character of the men who were accusing and attacking Jesus. When they ask for a sign, and we'll talk about this in just a little bit, when they ask for a sign, it's not actually a, an honest and sincere desire. But if you turn to the Gospel of John or just listen a little bit, there are a few passages that actually shows us something of a cross-section of the hearts of these Jews, the enemies of God's people and of God's Son, the Lord Jesus, in that day. In John 7.31, uh, we are taught about what, uh, about what these men thought of him. It says, many of the people believed in Christ. And they said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? And the response from that was that they would plot against him uh, to put him to death. Later on in the Gospel of John, as the tension between Jesus and his enemies increases, after he has raised Lazarus from the dead, instead of bowing down before his feet and pleading with him for mercy and more illumination, it says in John 11 verse 45 that many of the Jews who had come to Mary had seen the things Jesus did. They believed in him. Verse 47 tells us that the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and they said, what shall we do for this man works many signs? And later on, what they decided to do, verse 53, that they plotted to put him to death. And then in chapter 12, verse 37, it tells us that although he had done many signs before them, they did not believe in him. And this was to accomplish what the word of the Lord had been as Isaiah prophesied the hardness of their hearts. It's very important for us to understand that the impetus behind the questions that Jesus was asking, or I'm sorry, that Jesus was asked, is actually from a posture of profound enmity, hatred, and unbelief. The reason this is extremely instructive for us is, as we'll mention a few times tonight, it's very important to understand that these questions and these tests were coming not from Gentiles, not from outsiders and strangers, but from within the covenant community. These were people who had, as we're going to see, the promises and the privileges of knowing who the true God was, and yet they hated the one who came to bear the light of God's glory to them. And that's why tonight, as we look at these uh, words tonight, verses 29 to 36, what I'd like to show you and urge you tonight is that you must heed the light of Jesus by faith. You must heed the light of Jesus by faith or or you will suffer the eternal consequences. We must heed the light of Jesus by faith or suffer the eternal consequences. He'll use the language of light and of sight. And there is a synonymous use here that seeing Jesus is equal to having faith in Jesus. And that is the great privilege of the people of God, actually to see him by faith and to believe. And you'll see that juxtaposed throughout the Gospels. It's the faith of the masses looking to Christ, trusting in him, up against the plotting of the Jews and their rejection, malice, and hatred. But just as true that, as that is, that it is seeing Jesus by faith, which is the great privilege of the godly, I need you to understand that no privilege that attends the godly will save you apart from 
believing in Jesus Christ. In fact, those privileges that you have will actually be used as evidence against you in the day of judgment if you do not use them well. We're going to look tonight at these verses. We're going to look at three different things. Uh, The first of which is I want to show you the fearful danger of unbelief. The fearful danger of unbelief. When they were gathered together, it says there in verse 29, Jesus says, this is an evil generation. It is characterized by a moral hardness deserving of the harshest condemnation and judgment. Now, I read earlier from those passages in John, and what it shows you is that Jesus actually had no aversion to demonstrating uh, his truthfulness by way of sign. Signs were intended to strengthen faith, and Jesus gave many of them throughout his ministry. God the Father was not opposed to signs, and I could list off for you a whole litany of things that demonstrates that to be the case. The reason we have a rainbow stuck up in the heavens is a sign. It's a sign of God's faithfulness and kindness and patience before a sinful world. He gave the sign of circumcision to a people, and now we enjoy the signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper. God gave Moses the signs of and wonders to show the Egyptians and to show to the people of God to demonstrate that Moses was truly the servant sent from Jehovah. And when Gideon asked, probably more than he should have, for more signs and confirmation of what God had said, God freely granted it to him. He even offered a sign to Ahaz, who Ahaz sanctimoniously rejected. So you need to understand God has no inveterate opposition to showing signs, nor does his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus himself in his birth was a great sign to humanity as the Lord told Mary through the angel, this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling claws lying in a manger. That wasn't to Mary. That was actually uh, to uh, the Magi, the wise men. And so you have to understand there's no principled objection to this. Jesus' entire ministry was attended by these signs and wonders. He healed the sick, he raised the dead, he fed the hungry. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 21 and 22, it says, At that very hour he cured many infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind he gave sight. And Jesus answered and said to them, and this is when John sent to him in doubt, saying, Are you really the Messiah? And Jesus sent them back, and he says, Go tell John all the things that you have heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the dead hear, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So you need to understand, Jesus is not averse to demonstrating the truthfulness of who he is and what he preached. But this is where we really need to think a little bit about what unbelief really is. Because the Jews are not here struggling with things. They're not struggling with uh, trying to make sense of what Jesus is doing. They're not seeking to understand him in humility and in faith. No, actually what they're doing is they're actively opposing him. And their motive is pronounced in their unbelief. And what I want to do for a few minutes is open up for you what I've termed the pathology of unbelief. What is it about unbelief? that actually would drive these enemies of Christ to such lengths and to such vehement opposition. I want you to see, first of all, that part of the nature, the the, the dirty nature of unbelief is deception. These uh, were men who lied. They were hypocrites. They uh, presented themselves as righteous, and Jesus is going to cast down woes upon them in the very next section. These were men who here and in other cases would feign interest 
They would feign interest, although they did not need more evidence, nor did they sincerely want more evidence. What they wanted was another occasion to debate with Christ, to resist him, and to argue with him. And I want you to keep in mind tonight, as just as an aside by an application, that whether this is for yourself or whether it's for those with whom you may interact and be calling to believe in the gospel, it is uh, very possible for someone to be both deceived and the deceiver at the same time. Someone who has been blinded by Satan and is then living out that lie practically. And that is actually a wide problem among humanity. And so a big part of uh, the pathology of unbelief is the problem of deception. And this goes hand in hand with another aspect of unbelief that we need to be a watchful against. And that is hard heartedness. This is where the passage is intertwined with what we considered last week. Because last week, what we noticed is that there were men and women who could stare uh, the God incarnate deity in the face and actually say that what he is doing is enabled by the very power of Satan. There's a fearful kind of hard heartedness here where they could see the mighty works of God. This is why Jesus would say later on when uh, in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, they, he wanted someone to come back from the dead to tell his brother. He says, if you don't listen to Moses, if you don't listen to the prophets, even if one comes back from the dead, you're not going to believe. Hard-heartedness is a fearful problem and a great motivator of unbelief. And that leads to the third aspect of the pathology of unbelief that I would warn you about tonight. And that is not merely deception or hard-heartedness, but willful disobedience. John tells us in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 11, that the Lord Jesus, the light of the world, the light of the glory of God, came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. We could strengthen that by saying that his own absolutely refused to bow the knee to the one who had been promised to them and who came to them. And what aggravates this great sin is what Paul writes out, even as he grieves in agony over the horrific plight of his kinsmen, Israel, according to the flesh, He says, these Israelites were the ones to whom pertain adoption, glory, covenants, giving of the law, the service of God, promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. There are many, many, many privileges in the face of which the Jews harden their hearts. And this is where I would warn us all tonight. And I exhort all of you, especially you covenant children, as you grow up in the church, as you grow up hearing uh, the good things of God around your uh, family table, in your homes, as you learn to pray, as you learn your catechism, you need to understand and be mindful of this. It is possible to cultivate and maintain a fearfully hard heart right smack dab in the middle of God's promised blessings. And I simply could say, this ought not to be. These things ought not to be so. God, we've looked at this morning, is so willing to receive sinners in repentance. And I would urge you not to respond to the great things of Christ with unbelief, with hard-heartedness, but to respond in humility. There's a fearful danger of unbelief. We've looked at its pathology, but I simply want to show you finally on this first part what Jesus' answer to this unbelief is. He knew He knew that because of these things that work in the soul of man, remember he says that in John 2 and 3, he knew it was in man, that's why he didn't commit himself to man. But he knew that no amount of evidence, no amount of wonders performed will convince dead men. 
What actually needs to happen is not wonderful things outside the soul, but in the soul to call people from death to life. And so Jesus actually responds by simply saying this, I'm not going to kowtow to the demands of an unbelieving, hard-hearted people. You're going to have one sign. You're going to have one great demonstration about what I say that it is true. And that is the sign he says of Jonah. Now, Matthew will flesh this out a lot more in Matthew chapter 12. You can go read what he says about it. Luke is a bit more uh, concise, but Jesus simply says this. They can have, they will receive nothing except the sign of Jonah, the prophet for as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites. So also the son of man will be to this generation. Now the sign of Jonah as we learn from Matthew 12, is, simply, is actually, I think, a two-part sign. It's a two-part sign. The two-part sign is, it is the fact of the resurrection, and then also the preaching of repentance. Let's look at both parts of this. The fact of the resurrection, Jesus is here likening himself to Jonah. Not in every particular. He is not in every sense exactly like jo- Jonah, but in a general scope. Jonah was a man who spent three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. He went down. And if you read in Jonah chapter two, you see, he says that he, he likens it to being down into the bottom of the grave in Sheol. Well, Jonah was given up for dead by those who cast him into his demise. And those who witnessed that alleged demise never expected to see him again. But when he was spewed up on the land, he actually, we could say, as it were, received life again from the dead. Now, some people actually believe Jonah died and God resurrected him. I don't think the Bible teaches us that. But there is an analogy here. Jesus, Jesus himself was cast into the sea of judgment and actually died. And all assumed, all who saw him assumed that they would never see him again. All assumed they would never hear his voice again until he rose triumphant on the third day, not spewed out by a whale, but victorious over death, having taken up his own life again, which was his authority to do. And that was the great sign to all those people to whom he spoke. One takeaway here, friends, is you need to listen to people who've been raised from the dead. You need to listen. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And you know, this is again how hard hearted these Jews were because you remember what they did to another man that Jesus raised from the dead, Lazarus? You remember what they tried to do? They wanted to kill him because they wanted to put away the evidence of the glory of God. Jesus' answer to the unbelief is the very fact and reality of the resurrection, but it is attended by the powerful preaching of repentance. This is the other aspect about the sign of Jonah, that Jonah went about preaching. Jonah, one who, as it were, came from death to life, rose again to preach the very words of life. And this is what Jesus went about doing in his entire ministry. You need to understand as we look at these words tonight that this is all that Jesus will give to that generation, all he did give to them in their demand for a sign. But let me tell you, it's actually far more than any generation has ever actually deserved. The fact of God's glory in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the powerful message of repentance, you need to grasp tonight that this is the great crux and dividing line of all humanity. 
how you respond to the event of the resurrection that is taught to us by the infallible and glorious word of God prophesied throughout the entirety of the old covenant and yet brought to glorious fruition in the reality of the incarnation in his death and in his resurrection. This is the dividing line. It does not matter who you are, where you've come from, what your name is, what your privileges are or have been. This is the great sign to which you must take heed. Jesus has come back from the dead, preaching a gospel of life. And what you do with that has eternal consequences. And this is why Jesus seamlessly and immediately turns to the realities of judgment. Look at the text, verses 31 and 32. He calls for two key witnesses, or one key witness and then a group of key witnesses. The queen of the south, perhaps more well known to us as the queen of Sheba and the Ninevites of whom we have just read. Now just to uh, familiarize you a little bit more so that you can follow along with what I'm about to say. I'll just read to you a few verses from 1 Kings chapter 10. In 1 Kings 10 we have the account of this queen of the south who comes and seeks out not Jesus but one who prefigured Jesus in his exaltation that is King Solomon. I want you to pay attention to how the writer describes her. When the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of Jehovah, she came to test him with hard questions. Not like the Jews were testing Jesus, but in humble faith. She came to Jerusalem with a great retinue, with camels and spices and much gold, precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was within her heart. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, and all these other things, it says that there was no more spirit left in her. I want you to understand that uh, Jesus turns to discuss this coming judgment. I want you to see three things about the awful reality of judgment. This is the second thing we're going to look at. We've looked at the fearful danger of unbelief. And then now the awful reality of judgment. One of the awful aspects of that great day of judgment is that that great day of judgment will have a grand indictment. Now, if you're at all familiar with current events, all of us understand what this word indictment means. Well, maybe, maybe you don't. Do you know what an indictment is? An indictment is a formal written document that outlines charges that might be prosecuted in court. An indictment serves two great purposes. It sets down what the charges actually are and is the basis upon which prosecution will advance its case. And in human jurisprudence, what it also allows is for the, is for the accused to mount a defense. The Bible provides graphic imagery of the grand indictment that will be set down at the day of judgment. When Jesus returns, the Bible teaches us that the books will be opened. Those books, the record of the works of man shall be opened. And however it will look, we're not going to be pressed for time on that great day. However, it will work out. Person after person after person will be brought forth, will be indicted, and the charges will be read. And in this case, Luke 11, 32, and 33, we could imagine Jesus, the great judge, turning to case number 11-31-32. 
calling these who are so guilty of vile and hard-hearted unbelief. And what he's going to do, just as any just judge would do, is allow then for the testimony of witnesses. That great day will have a great indictment, but it will also have something like a grand jury. The two parts of this grand jury or the two key witnesses will be the queen of the South and the Ninevites. And I want you to imagine, if you will, what does it mean? What does it mean that the queen of the South will rise up in judgment against this evil generation? What does it mean that the Ninevites will rise up in judgment and condemn those guilty of such heinous unbelief? Well, think about it. The queen of Sheba on that great day is called forth. And she's asked to give her story. If you ever watched a court proceeding, you know that a lot of times the, the prosecution, the district attorney will try to ingratiate the witnesses to the jury to make them seem more credible, more mindful. Well, we can ask, what is the story of the queen of the South? What she would say is this. I lived a thousand years before the coming of Jesus Christ, the Lord who's standing right before her in that great day. I heard a rumor that there was a great king. And so I gathered together all of my attendants. I brought lavish gifts. And you need to understand, she traveled 2,000 miles in the day before airplanes and before motorized vehicles. Children, that would be like setting out from Royston, Georgia tonight and heading with all of your friends on foot with camels to Phoenix, Arizona. Thousands of miles. She finally uh, showed up to Jerusalem found this prefigurement of the king of glory and asked everything that was on her mind. She learned so much. She received the wisdom. And ultimately what happened is she believed, she believed in the Lord God, Jehovah. I stopped earlier in the reading of first Kings chapter 10, because I wanted you uh, to hear some of that testimony before we get to verse seven. And here's what she says. When it says that her heart or there was no more breath in her, doesn't mean she died, but she was just astonished. She's flabbergasted, if you will. And in verse seven, here's what she says. I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. So what she recognizes is what she heard was just a sliver. And what she saw was amazing. It's astounding to her. And so you can imagine the question being given by the great uh, divine uh, prosecuting attorney, Queen of Sheba. What would you say to someone who actually stood before me? What would you say about someone who saw my ministry, heard my words, witnessed my miracles, and then demanded that I give them more signs? You can imagine her astonishment. They saw you, not just by the hearing of the ear, but the actual seeing with the eyes. They saw the glory of the things that you did and they rejected you. She would say, oh my Lord, there's nothing but to condemn them. They are guilty. And that would be one of the great witness testimonies. She will rise up in judgment against those who disbelieve Christ. Well, turn to the Ninevites, not just one, but a whole host of people. And they would be then asked, case by case by case to tell their story. Why don't we just ask the king of the Ninevites? What is it? Well, his story would be this. I was presiding one day working over the chaos that uh, filled my experience in the city of Nineveh. And then this man showed up a little bit worse for wear 
and began to preach like we've never heard anybody preach. He simply walked through our city crying out with a simple message, yet 40 days in Nineveh will be destroyed. There was a rumor that he had been swallowed up by a fish, but his message was simple. His words were powerful. And in response to that, every single one of us cast ourselves down to the ground, even our cattle. We repented in dust and ashes. We turned away from our wickedness because we heard a message, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. You can imagine the question then being posed to the king of Nineveh. What would you say to someone who stood before me, who saw my ministry, heard my words, witnessed my miracles, and demanded that I give them more signs? This king, you can imagine responding, saying, what? They heard your preaching, not Jonah's, but, but your preaching? They stood in the very light of your grace? They saw the works that you did? They will rise up and say, guilty, send these people away into everlasting condemnation. This will be something of what characterizes that great day of judgment. Witnesses will be giving testimony. And that day of judgment will not merely have grand indictment, not merely a grand jury, but that day of judgment will have a great and fearful sentence. I want you to put yourself into the shoes of the Jews hearing these words. They uh, were very uh, prideful about their ethnicity. Uh, They were not as kind to the ladies as uh, we men are today. And it would have been a great scandal for them to have a Gentile woman and a Gentile nation of enemies of the people of God called forth to be witnesses against them in judgment. And on that great day, On that great day, you can imagine those men standing. And you need to understand this as well for yourselves. In human courts, after the prosecution gives their testimony, it's time for the accused to mount their defense. But on that day, what defense can unbelief offer? The Jews and any who reject Christ will look to the right and look to the left. Is there anyone to represent me, anyone to defend me? There will be friends, no one. There'll be no one who can bring a case, no one who can bring counter evidence. There will just be absolute silence when there is no one to interpose. You need to meditate upon this fact. Children, as you grow up and you think about Christ and you maybe are tempted to turn away from Christ, you need to think about this. What will it be like to stand on the day of judgment, the glories of God before you, the terrors of hell behind you and have nobody to represent you? It is an awful thing to stand before God without a mediator. Ralph Venning in his book, The Sinfulness of Sin, says this. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many paths to it as there are sins. But impenitence and unbelief are the high road. The beaten path in which multitudes will go to hell. Now hell is mocked today. Judgment is scorned as some sort of harsh Uh, coercion, but to sin against an infinite God as a finite creature is to incur an infinite debt that you could never pay with your finite strength, polluted as it is. This is why it is a great sin to turn away from Christ because it is the sin of turning away from the only one who can actually save. We need to beware tonight of hard heartedness. Beware of callousness on your heart It will grow, it will increase, it will desensitize your soul 
and will make the ground under your feet more and more slippery as you would slide headlong into everlasting destruction. And one of the things the Bible is very clear about is on that great day, there will not be a single tear of remorse shed among the saints. It's hard for us to imagine that now, isn't it? It's hard for us to imagine looking at someone being cast in everlasting condemnation and not recoiling in horror. But what does the Bible say? Psalm 149, let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the people. A more advanced and developed picture of what will look like on that great day. Revelation 19, 2 and 3, for the uh, testimony is this, true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. And again, they said, that is the saints, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. There is a great sentence of condemnation that will fall upon those who reject Jesus Christ. And far from it being an occasion of weeping then for the saints, it will actually be an occasion for holy, solemn rejoicing and worship. What I would press you to do tonight is just be sure as you look to Jesus Christ by faith that you're standing with the multitudes of the triumph, the triumphant on that day and not those cast into everlasting darkness. Jesus turns from this striking, heavy, weighty reality and calls people to the light. The last thing I want to show you tonight very briefly is the absolute necessity of spiritual sight, also known as saving faith. Jesus here very simply lays out something that is clear. He simply says we need to heed the light. Now, the way Jesus uh, presents this here, this is actually not a classically evangelistic text, although it is surely an evangelical text. And what I mean by that is he's not here really talking so much on how do we shine the light of our witness before unbelievers, but he's calling each one of you, how do you need to respond to the light as it shines out from Jesus Christ? No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under the basket, but on the lampstand. What he's saying is, I have come to bring light to the world. He is the true light that shines in a dark place. The Bible is exceedingly clear about this. It would be so wrong for us to take Jesus Christ in the light of his glory and throw a covering over it to turn away from it. And the way that people do that is by closing their eyes to him. One application here that you need to take with you tonight is we must let Jesus Christ And his illuminating glory shine on everything that we do. Last week I made an application. We must be very careful to avoid the sin of compartmentalized Christianity. We think that uh, there's not a spiritual war over here. And we can just do what we want over here. But no, if the light of the glory of Jesus pervades our lives, there is no compartmentalization. We will seek to do all for his glory and in light of his glory. He says here, heed the light, friends. But he also says, you must be very certain of your sight. Now, uh, God has blessed me with uh, good eyes. I've never had to deal with eyeglasses. I've never had to deal with cataracts or uh, 20, anything less than 20, 25 vision. But some of you know what it's like to have your vision clouded. Some of you know that when things don't quite work, it's not just something that affects your eyes. It affects everything about you. When your eyes don't work, if your eyes are blackened by cataracts or if you've lost your sight, you can have the healthiest body, you can have the prettiest face, 
You can have the strongest muscles or the sharpest mind, but everything is darkness. Everything is affected. This is what Jesus is saying. Your eyes are the window for your body out of which everything is either light or dark. In the same way, faith is the eye of the soul. If you do not have faith in Jesus Christ, everything in you is absolutely and totally dark. What is Jesus urging the people to do here? What am I urging you to do tonight? I want to take the language of some older writers here who urge people on the basis of this this passage to cultivate what they say is a single heart. You need to cultivate a single heart. What does that mean? J.C. Ryle says this, a single heart is a heart which is not only changed, converted, and renewed, but a heart that is thoroughly, powerfully, and habitually under the influence of the Holy Ghost. You need to cultivate in your life a heart that is thoroughly, powerfully, and habitually under the influence of the Holy Ghost. That is exercising the eye of your soul, constantly looking to the glory of Jesus Christ, constantly remembering his promises and remembering his words. And you know what will be the result of cultivating a simple or a single heart? Is actually it will enable you to live a simple life. Years ago, I was listening to a sermon by Sinclair Ferguson. I don't remember what it was on. I just remember him saying this, that sanctification is the process by which God makes us more simple. What does he mean? That as we grow in holiness, the war between righteousness and sin lessens. The lust of the flesh raging against the good things of the spirit diminishes. And what happens is we're becoming more Simple, more unified. This is why the psalmist writes in Psalm 86 verse 11, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. This is what Jesus is calling us to. Not living in the fearfulness and danger of unbelief. Not cringing and being terrified of coming judgment. But setting our eyes of the soul upon Jesus Christ. And letting that light do its work. Illuminating, changing, transforming. And leading us to live lives of righteousness in this present evil age, following him and doing what is good in his sight. The people who heard these words were the recipients of great privileges. I want to tell you that you are all here tonight, recipients of great privileges. We've never seen Jesus Christ, but do you remember what Jesus said? Blessed are those who hear and do not see and yet believe. We have the privilege of having the fullness of God's revelation given to us, written in holy scriptures. Take the great privileges that God has given you and use them, receive them, enjoy them. Don't close your eyes to them because along with great privileges come great warnings. There is a day of judgment. And if the queen of the South will rise up against the Jews who rejected Christ in the flesh, If the Ninevites will do the same, they also will bear witness to you and against you if you refuse to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. These great privileges and great warnings, they're not manipulative coercions to call you to Christ, but it's a gracious call. It's a gracious call to come, to receive him, to believe him, to walk in the light that we might stand in the judgment and stand with Christ forever. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for the light of the gospel. And we pray that you would never allow us to despise it, to turn from it, 
to uh, reject it. Lord, we pray for our children that as they grow up in the context of these privileges, that they would receive them and enjoy them. And we pray that the light of Jesus Christ would permeate and uh, would fill everything in our lives. That we would not compartmentalize things, that we would not be upon the receiving end of that grand indictment to come, but that we would be welcomed into the everlasting glory that our Lord Jesus has secured for all those who love him in faith. Lord, please do that work for us and in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We'll stand and sing hymn 469. 469, how sweet and awesome is the place. Let's sing this in closing tonight.
We'll sing number 407, the first and last verse, uh, 407, verses 1 and 5. Look up and receive the blessing of the Lord as we go from here. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.